Mark chapter four is where we're gonna be together. You know, so it's been an interesting few weeks. I don't know if you were here last Sunday, but it was one of my favorite Sundays in the history of our church as hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people just said, hey, I need the prayers of the church. And we got to pray over each other and encourage each other last week. It was an amazing week. But coming out of that, there were all of these conversations. And uh, I think about one of these conversations in particular, one of my dear friends, he's part of our church, he and his family, they are, like when I think of ferocious followers of Jesus, I mean, just like sold out, it's this family. I mean, they love the Lord. But the truth is, the last couple of years have been marked with just unbelievable hardship. It's just, it's just been a really difficult season. And he and I were talking this week uh, kind of in response to last Sunday, and he says, Dave, you know, there are moments in our life with Christ where what we think about God and what we feel about God are worlds apart. Have you ever been there before? You know, like you, you have these thoughts about God, like, God, I know you're good. I know you're powerful. I know you're near. I know you're capable. But what it feels like in my heart, you feel distant and far. It feels like you're sleeping on the job. Have you ever been there before? Remember years ago when my mom was battling cancer, and in my head, I had all of this theology about the power and the goodness and the nearness of God, and yet in my heart, my heart was struggling to catch up with what my mind was trying to convince me is true. Have you been there before? You, 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 you know those places, right? And here's the, here's the reality of life with Jesus, is that sometimes life with Christ does not feel like a vacation by the sea. <laughs> that it is possible to be right in the center of God's love and right in the center of God's will, but to have a life that is marked with the surging storms of reality. And I love this because I think it's in these moments when the unexpected storms of life kind of roll in on the horizon of our hearts that you and I begin to uncover some of the things about our hearts that we didn't know were there in the first place. And there's something about these seasons that reveal to us who we are and what it is that we actually think about God. And so that's what I want us to explore together for just a few moments this morning. You know, there's a story in Mark chapter four, if you... If you grew up in church, you probably heard it a thousand times. In fact, it's probably going to be difficult for you to hear it again in a fresh way this morning because when you've watched a movie a bunch, or when you've heard a story a bunch, you just kind of jump straight to the conclusions and you make all of your own assumptions, right? So my, my prayer for those of you that have heard this story before is, is that the Lord would give you spirit-filled creativity to hear it fresh because I believe God has a fresh word for you this morning. And there's some of you here this morning, you've never even opened the Bible, you don't know the story. And what I want you to hear is that what we're looking at this morning, it's not a fable, it's not a myth, it's not just a, a cool story with a spiritual touch point to it. No, this is a historical reality that was legitimately documented by eyewitnesses 2,000 years ago. And I want to invite you to be courageous enough to find yourself in the middle of the story this morning, because I believe God has something for you, even if you don't yet believe in him. And it's this moment that unfolded 2,000 years ago. Jesus had called 12 guys, 12 ordinary people, just like you and I, into this radical adventure. And they got this front row seat to just what it was that God was up to in the world at that moment. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. He calls them in. And for the majority of their time with Christ, it was exciting. It was filled with adventure. It was filled with the miraculous. But there's, there's moments like the one we're going to read today where the disciples find themselves in the midst of an unexpected storm. And this unexpected storm is going to uncover some of the unrevealed things in their heart that they didn't know were still holding on to them. And Jesus is going to deal with it. So let's look at Mark chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 35 together this morning. 
We're just gonna move through the story slowly so it can wash over you and you can find yourself in it. I want you to picture the sights and the sounds and the smells and what it would feel like to be here. Verse 35 starts like this. It says, that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat and there were other boats with him. Now I want you to picture this scene, okay? I know some of you know this story, but I want you to really picture the scene. You go back to the beginning of Mark chapter four and we're told that Jesus has been with this crowd of thousands. And for us to think about a crowd of thousands isn't that big of a deal. I mean, we live in an urban context. You are in crowds all the time. Like you go to concerts, you go to football games, you're in traffic, even our church is crowded. I mean, we are in crowds all the time. But in the days of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, in a non-urban context, to be in a crowd made up of several thousand people was a supernatural event in and of itself. This story takes place in the region of Galilee and most of the little towns that dotted the north shore of Galilee were made up of 100 to 150 people or less. Jesus' hometown of Nazareth was about 100 people at best and so most of you have extended families that are bigger than Jesus' entire town. We're told that crowds of thousands would gather in a time where there was no interstate system where there were no cars, where there were no airplanes, there were no cell phones, there was no mass communication, there were no public restrooms or fast food restaurants or hotels to stay in. So for a crowd to gather, it meant that a mother and a father would grab their child and say, we're gonna walk for four days. We're gonna sleep on the side of the road. We don't know if we'll carry enough food to make it, but we're gonna travel for days to be in the presence of the one that can change everything. So sometimes we just read this and we go, oh, cool, there's a crowd there. We know crowds. No, we don't know crowds like this. Picture Bonnaroo. I mean, that's what's happening. Sweaty, dirty, hungry, maybe drugged out people. We don't know. They're all there searching for something. They're exhausted. And it says that Jesus has been teaching them all day long. In fact, the crowd was so oppressive that it says in order to keep from getting crushed, Jesus had to get in a boat and push out from the shore just to create a little bit of space. And he teaches them and he loves them and he serves them and he heals them and they're exhausted by the end of the day. Can you imagine serving thousands of people with no infrastructure to serve them well day in and day out? So the story begins in this place of absolute exhaustion. And I want you to look back at verse 35 and verse 36. Look at what Jesus asked of his disciples in this moment of exhaustion. He says, hey, let's go to the other side of the lake. And we tend to read this through our modern ears. But we don't think about what this means. The Sea of Galilee was 12 miles across and boats that, that contained engines had not yet been created. So imagine you're standing in a crowd at Bonnaroo watching your favorite artist for 15 hours on end. You're exhausted and you're leaving for the day and Jesus turns to you and says, hey, would some of you mind rowing me in a boat 12 miles across the sea? I mean, this is unbelievable. These 12 guys, they would have climbed into a boat that was about 17 feet long. It's not very long. I drive a 1988 Cutlass Supreme, true story, I can tell you're jealous. It's, a, it's about 17 feet long, and if you wanna see just how small that is, let's get 12 dudes from this service and go sit on top of my car at the end of this to see what it would have been like. This was not a cruise, this was not a time to relax or to get quiet time. They had served and they had served and they had served, and Jesus says, and I need you to serve me some more. 
And I think sometimes we forget this because we expect life with Jesus to feel like a vacation by the sea, but there are moments when he says, I know we've been going at this all day. Here's a paddle. Would you mind rowing me across the lake? And this is it. Just imagine you sit down. They're all crowded. Thomas's knees are in Peter's back. Judas is doing something terrible because he's Judas. <laughs> Thomas is doubting whether or not this is a good idea. Let's just use all the stereotypes. But picture the scene. And they begin to row they begin to row across. Look at this, verse 37. It says, then a furious squall came up, like a mini hurricane, basically, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And these guys grew up on the Sea of Galilee. Most of them were professional fishermen when Jesus called them to follow him. And they were unfamiliar with this. If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, it's an amazing place. The sea itself sits 700 feet below sea level. I don't know if you know much about geography, but that's really low. You can look off in the distance, and just 30 miles away is Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet tall. It's constantly covered by snow and cool air. So what would happen is in the context of that very short area, the cool air off of Mount Hermon would collide with the warm air that was rising off the Sea of Galilee, and it made it an incubator for furious storms. The fishermen knew this. They knew that it was possible to get on the lake and for there to be calm seas and clear skies and within a very short amount of time for a storm to begin brewing. And it says all of a sudden they find themselves are caught in this hurricane. It says water's coming in over the edge of the boat. And I just want you to picture this. Have you, have you ever been in a boat that's taking on water? You know, it's not a, a very comforting thing. Back on Memorial Day, uh, Sydney and I, we'd gone to see my family in Charleston, and uh, we took kayaks out one day, and we uh, kind of kayaked through the channels, and we go out into the open ocean. There's this little island not too far off the shore. It's a bird sanctuary, and we wanted to go out there and check it out. So we get out to the island, we walk around, and then on the way back in, we're, we're kayaking in, and Sydney and I are talking and uh, just kind of chatting as we're paddling, and she sees over my shoulder that a large boat has come by in the distance and a large wave is coming towards us. And because my wife loves me, but she loves a good practical joke more than she loves me, she just begins to gently turn her boat so the nose of the boat is facing the wave that is coming, but she doesn't warn me. <laughs> and this wave crashes over and just fills up my boat with water and I'm soaked and she is laughing her head off, and all of a sudden, I'm in this boat that is taking on water. And I don't know if you know much about boating, but the water's supposed to be on the outside of the boat. And the disciples, they find themselves in this moment where it's taking on water. Look at this. It keeps going, verse 38. But Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Now, it almost feels like this is two different stories. Remember, this 17-foot boat. He's not like downstairs in the captain's cabin. Like he's in the boat, he's, he's, he's sleeping on a cushion. And these guys, they're losing their minds. It, it reminded me of that scene out of the movie Dunkirk. How many of you seen that movie? Just raise your hand, just curious. I love that movie, you need to go see it if you haven't. Awesome, awesome movie. But there's this one scene in Dunkirk where all of the soldiers are getting attacked and they're fearing for their lives. And in the midst of all of the mayhem, there's this one soldier that's sound asleep. It looked so odd. It's like, how do you make it through all of the chaos? And it's the scene that you see unfolding in Mark 4. Everybody's freaking out except for who? Jesus. He's sound asleep. He keeps going. And I think this is kind of the, the climax of the story, these next two verses. Listen to this. It says, the disciples woke him up and they said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I want you to notice this because this unexpected storm has showed up in their lives and it's suddenly begun to uncover 
Some of the things about God that they didn't know were deep down inside of them. The disciples, they're, they're scared for their lives. They're taking on water. And all of a sudden, their confidence in God is being exposed. And they begin to, to cry out, hey, Jesus, we know that you're loving. We know that you're kind. We know that you're present. But all of our circumstances seem to indicate that you no longer care about us. Have you ever been in a season in life where your external circumstances seemed to contradict your theology of God's goodness? Have you ever been in a moment where it seemed like everything that was brewing around you was revealing that when push comes to shove, you're not sure God's really got you? You know, one of my favorite things to do with my boys, especially my two oldest boys, is take them surfing when he goes to visit my family. So this summer we were back home and I'm with my youngest son, Jack, and he's not quite strong enough to paddle into a wave on his own. And so I'll get on the back of the board and I'll paddle for him. And once he catches it, I'll push him in and he'll, he'll ride it in. And he loves doing it. He and Micah love doing that. And so this one day we, we catch this wave and I push him in. And I'm never more than a few yards from being right behind him. And Jack is riding this wave and the wave comes up behind him and it just, it just knocks him off the board and just tumbles him through the water and he's eating seashells and sand and he's drinking in salt water and his little five-year-old head pops up through that white water as soon as he can. He gasps for air. He screams at the top of his lungs, Dad, you hate me! <laughs> and I mean, isn't that how it feels sometimes? That you start taking on water, your marriage just starts taking on water. Your career starts taking on water. Your relationships start taking on water. Your finances start taking on water. You can't get the water out of the boat fast enough. And the faster you scoop the water out, the quicker the questions begin to come. Jesus, don't you care? Jesus, don't you care? And it says the disciples did what? They went and they woke Jesus up. Look at this. I believe this is one of the most comforting and confronting pictures of Jesus in all the Gospels. As Americans, we will love the first half of this story, and we will hate the second half of it, but if you want the real Jesus, you have to have all of it. I want you to see this, verse 38, 39. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And so Jesus got up, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. I want you to see this. This is not a metaphor. Some of you have been in church way too long that you can read a sentence like that and not be stunned by the awe of God's power. Jesus stands up mid-nap. He sees the hurricane, and he says, peace, be still. He spoke to the storm the way a parent speaks to an unruly toddler. The only difference was the storm was more obedient than your three-year-old is. The storm quieted down. It calmed down. And this is so comforting because you begin to recognize that Jesus Christ is more powerful than anything you will face. That in Christ is all the strength to quiet and to calm every storm that blows onto the horizon of life. And it is a comforting reality to realize that our Savior is not just willing, but he is able. And that's the comforting part of the story. But the confronting part of the story is how Jesus then turns and responds to his disciples. He speaks with authority to the storm, and he turns to the disciples, and look at what he says. He said to the disciples, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? 
See, as Americans, we hate this because Jesus would have been a terrible therapist. Jesus is not a good life coach. He doesn't sit down in the boat, they're soaking wet. He doesn't go, hey, Peter, buddy, tell me how you feel. Were you scared? Were you thinking about your, your kids and your wife at home? Hey, Thaddeus, is your heart still racing, buddy? How you doing? You okay? Jesus doesn't circle them up and say, hey, tell me how you feel. Jesus says, I know how you feel. And how you feel is revealing what you think, and what you think is very problematic when it comes to God. I want you to notice this. Jesus had all sorts of room for doubters in his inner circle, but Jesus never placated them in their doubt. Jesus has room for doubters, but he never waters the doubt and says, just stay there. Jesus wakes up and he says, listen, your external circumstances are not a clear depiction of how your father in heaven feels about you. And this unexpected storm has uncovered what you really think when push comes to shove. And Jesus says, let me deal with that. See, this is a beautiful moment because Jesus wasn't just interested in calming the storm they were in. Jesus wanted to calm the storm that was in them. And Jesus knew the most dangerous thing brewing on the Sea of Galilee were not the waves that could sink their boat. It was the waves of doubt that would sink their faith. And Jesus says, hey, let's deal with this thing that has been exposed in this unexpected moment. He says, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Don't you know my character? Don't you know my strength? Don't you know my power? Do you still have no faith? And Jesus confronts them in the moment of absolute fear. And it's confronting, but it's comforting because I want you to notice this. Look back at the story. What does Jesus do after he confronts them? Does he call one of the other boats and say, hey, I'm done with these losers. Let me get in this boat and I'm gonna finish the gospels with a new crew. Does Jesus jump in and swim to shore and say, I forget you? What does Jesus do? He stays in the boat and he keeps forming them he keeps loving them, he keeps serving them, and he keeps leading them because that's what Jesus does. Don't ever confuse the confrontational heart of God with his desire to be in close proximity with you. Because he loves us, he confronts us. Because he loves us, he calms the storms in us, even when he has not yet calmed the storm around us. Look at verse 41, how the story ends. And it says, and they were what, church? What's it say, verse 41? And they were terrified. Why were they terrified? They were terrified because they realized the most dangerous thing in the Sea of Galilee was in their boat. That this was not just a carpenter or a teacher or a spiritual guru, but that when this guy spoke, the elements would obey and they had to decide whether or not they would follow suit. They had to decide whether or not Jesus was all that he says he is. And they begin to ask the question, who is this man? Because they begin to realize if Jesus really is who he says he is, listen church, if Jesus really is who he says he is, you cannot just take part of his teaching to take just part of his teaching is to deny him in his totality. 
And the disciples all of a sudden begin to weigh, do we want this, Jesus? So what C.S. Lewis so beautifully depicts in the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you remember that story where Lucy is having the conversation about Aslan? And she says, is he good? Referring to Jesus, is he good? Yes, he's good, but he's dangerous. Is Jesus good? Yes, he's good, but he's dangerous. And he looks at his disciples, and I want you to hear this. He challenges their heart when they questioned his character. And he says, listen, here's the deal. I will let those I love go through storms. Jesus will indeed let his loved ones go through storms. And he wanted his disciples to understand that the presence of a storm was not the absence of their father's love and attention. Because he knew if they did not understand that, they wouldn't make it. The life of Jesus would begin to become the ultimate proof of this. Remember, he's dying on the cross. And there's this moment where Jesus is neck deep in the greatest storm of human history, but he is perfectly in the middle of the Father's will. And I think we need the Spirit of God to help us shed the junk theology of American culture that has somehow equated perfect external peace with the evidence of God's unending love. And Jesus says, get in the boat, go with me, and I'll show you how this works out. And this is the beauty, and this is the frustration of the gospel. And this is the beauty and the frustration of real people like you and I trying to follow a real Jesus. Because we're not just giving ourselves to a hollow philosophy or a set of ideas. We're saying we want to follow a real Jesus, and we want to become like you, Jesus. And to become like Jesus, there will be these moments where he brings us into the unexpected to reveal that which has not yet been uncovered so that he can make us more like himself. And there are these moments when the gospel is this great reminder that Jesus does not always calm the storms we're in, but he always calms the storms in us. That the gospel is not just about peace from the storm, it's about peace in the storm. It's the reason everybody loves the first part of Psalm 23, but we hate the last part. You remember Psalm 23, verse one through three? The Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. He leads me beside the still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He guides my feet in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We're like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Bring Psalm 23, bring Psalm 23. I love Psalm 23, one, two, three. And then you get to verse four and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, I hate this. Because even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? Come on, church, you know it. The valley of the shadow of what? death. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. I go, that's the way the Psalm goes. And I go, I don't want verses four and five. I don't know any normal people that want verses four and five. I don't want a table prepared in the presence of my enemies. I want God to crush my enemies and then prepare the table in the green pastures next to the still waters. Can I get an amen? That's what you want. That's not what you get. That's not what we get with Christ. He doesn't put us in a helicopter and fly us over the valley. He walks us through it. John 14, 27, do you remember that? 
Jesus had just told the disciples, hey, they're getting ready to kill me. They're getting ready to arrest me, crucify me. This is gonna be brutal. It really put a damper on their last dinner together. They're like, what was that about? They start walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, a 45-minute journey down a moonlit path lined with olive orchards. And it's in the middle of that walk as they're literally entering into the storm. Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, hey, I'm getting ready to go through the unthinkable, but I want you to see what's in me. John chapter 14, verse 27, he says, the peace that I have is the peace that I'm giving you. Jesus says, listen, in the midst of this storm, I want you to see what's in my eyes and what's in my eyes is not fear. What's in my eyes is not terror and doubt. What's in my eyes is the peace of the Lord. And Jesus wanted them to have inside of them what he had inside of them so they could go through what he was going to go through. You know, Jesus knows if he calms every storm, your heart will not be strong enough to continue on the journey of discipleship. And Jesus loves you enough. He loves you enough to let you walk through the storm. But he's there with you. Now, here's the beauty of this. So much cool stuff. What was Jesus doing in the storm? Look back at it. What's Jesus doing in the storm? He's asleep. He's asleep. And I love this because discipleship, being a follower of Jesus, is not just about us believing the right things. It's about us becoming like Jesus. About us embodying his character and his nature and his thoughts. And I believe that day on the sea, Jesus was giving us a snapshot of what he wants for all of us. And that is a type of faith and a type of trust that is so deeply anchored in the character of God that you too can sleep in unthinkable seasons. You know, growing up on the coast, every fall we'd have hurricane warnings and sometimes hurricanes would come. And the truth is I'd always sleep through them because my father was in the house. And my dad would stay up all night and he'd watch the weather and he'd, he'd look for it. And if we needed to move, he'd move us in a different room in the house. If we needed to evacuate, we knew that he would do that. But the reason we could sleep, why? It wasn't because the circumstances around us were smooth. It's because there was someone in the house that we can trust. Ethos, there's someone in your boat and you can trust him. 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 Have you guys gotten that yet? You can trust him. You can trust him. He's trustworthy. I'll mix it up for you. You can trust him. We're all in different places. There's some of you this morning. You're in the middle of a storm. Your marriage is taken on water. Your life is taken on water. You know it. There's some of you this morning, you're on the sea and you're paddling out. The storm hasn't quite hit you, but you see the clouds forming and you know there's no way you can get back to shore in time. So the storm's not here yet, but you sense it's coming. There's some of you here this morning and you're standing on the shore. You're not in a storm at all, but you look out over the horizon and you know that the people you love are facing waves that are bigger than they can handle. And so this morning, we're gonna do what the disciples did, but hopefully we're gonna do it with more faith. We're gonna go to our metaphorical boat and we're gonna say, hey, Jesus, hey, Jesus, would you calm what's going on in us? Would you deal with what it is that's going on in us? And so before we go and take communion, before we sing more songs, I'm gonna give you time right now at your seats 
with someone next to you to just identify, this is where I'm at in the story. I'm in the storm, or I see the storm is coming maybe, or there is somebody that I love is in the storm. And I'm gonna give you just a few minutes to just share that with the people that are next to you, and then just spend time praying for each other, caring for each other, asking that God would give us his peace as we walk into this season that we're in together. And then after 10 or 12 minutes of praying, we'll dismiss you to communion and worship. Let me pray over you as you enter into this time. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, give us the ability to recognize and to see where we are and where you are. And God, would you build our confidence in you. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.